Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome back, Blockhead listeners. Glad to have you here today. We have quite the cartoonist on board with us today. Did you ever try to draw Charlie Brown or Snoopy or Linus and Lucy when you were a kid? Most cartoonists at some point or another in their apprenticeship over the years have put pencil or pen to the test and uh, attempted or made the futile attempt at capturing Charles Schultz's Charlie Brown. And what you find out pretty quickly is that the proportions and the balance and whatever it is that Charles Schultz brought to bear in his drawings is almost impossible. It's like trying to catch lightning in a bottle. You just can't you can't conjure it up. It's it's not something you can imitate. Uh, it, it's either there or it's not there. And it's one of the most frustrating and vexing endeavors a cartoonist can put themselves through. Nevertheless, we continue to try one way or the other just because we love those characters and uh, they're always so elusive. Well, one cartoonist who has been able to come close to capturing, as close to capturing that lightning in a bottle as anybody, is our guest today. His name is Robert Pope, and Robert is the current illustrator for a whole host of Peanuts books that have come from Simon & Schuster, as well as Boom Studios, and uh, adaptations of the animated films, the most recent of which is Race for Your Life, Charlie Brown. Among the Simon & Schuster books, uh, the one that stands out most to me is You've Got to Rock, Charlie Brown, which is, uh, I think, Halloween from Charlie Brown's point of view, as Robert says in this interview today. Robert has done a marvelous job of capturing the life in Charles Schultz's drawings and in his pen. Not only has he got the look of Charlie Brown and the look of Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy and the entire Peanuts gang, but he's also got something of the life of the characters in his drawings. And, and it's one thing to get the look. A lot of people might be able to get the look. They're good enough mimics to get the look of Charlie Brown and the proportions right. But it's capturing the freedom uh, and the, the liveliness of Charles Schultz's drawing and his pen and the freedom that's inherent in cartooning that makes good cartooning that Robert has been able to wed to the, the likeness that he's also capable of like nobody's business. Uh, he is a master and he's also uh, a Schultz scholar of a kind and uh, he is able to, to call up whole passages out of Peanuts uh, on a dime and uh, I can't think of anybody who is better suited not only in terms of his skills as an illustrator but his sensitivity to the material and his concern for the material. I can't think of anybody better to carry the torch of Peanuts characters forward than Robert Pope. Uh, He is really just the right guy in the right place at the right time. The books that are being done now are really wonderful. Uh, They really are close to the spirit of the comic strip. They bring uh, new readers into the material. It's reaching out to a whole new generation. 
So I am privileged to have Robert here with me today. And uh, without further ado, Robert Pope and myself in conversation. Hey, Robert, welcome to Blockhead. Thank you very much for having me. I'm I'm thrilled to have you. You are somebody who is deeply immersed in Schultzdom right now. And I think our listeners, those who are interested in Charlie Brown and Linus, Lucy, Snoopy, uh, all would love to hear from somebody who's working on the Peanuts characters and keeping them alive today. So uh, I think this is going to be a really exciting discussion and we're thrilled to have you. Thank you very much. I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> so, um, so some of our listeners, uh, forgive me for saying this, but some of our listeners may not be familiar with you or your career because as somebody who has worked on a lot of different characters, um, maybe you've been a little under the radar working on licensed characters and, and whatnot. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but give our listeners a rundown of some of the high profile projects that you've worked on. Uh, over the last few years and and a, a sense of what your career's trajectory has been. I could certainly do that. It, it's interesting that you you bring that up because one of the things, I mean, one of the things about ghosting and working with licensed characters is there's a certain uh, there's a certain anonymity to it that's just a, a byproduct of the job. Right. You know, working with established characters and unless the directive is unless you have an editorial mandate to really shake things up, to really change things, then frankly, you're, you should be going out of your way to, uh, to create a kind of, uh, uh, not the appearance of your, your own personal style being imprinted on these characters. Now, obviously that happens whether you want it to or not. You can't look at a Carl Barks, Donald Duck drawing and look at a Tony Strobel, Donald Duck drawing or a Don Rosa, Donald Duck drawing and not see their individual their individuality as, as cartoonists. But at the same time, you can look at all three and go, well, that's Donald Duck. And, right. and, and it, it's not too edgy or, or too, uh, you know, too far away from the model sheets. Um, I, the reason I think that I've done as much as I've done is because I started as an animator about, right. 30, about 30 years ago, mm-hmm. um, almost 31 years ago. And uh, so I was always, uh, it was always important to me to maintain model. And I, I've worked with, since I, I'm based out of Atlanta, uh, primarily a lot of Hanna-Barbera properties uh, through the Turner Networks, uh, Cartoon Network and Boomerang and, and, and before they existed, of course, just regular old TBS and stuff like that. So sure. Scooby-Doo and Scooby-Doo <laughs> and, and uh, the Looney Tunes characters, uh, uh-huh. Johnny Bravo and the Powerpuff Girls. Not a lot of the Powerpuff Girls, but I've drawn them, drawn them enough to remember whenever I go to a convention, I don't leave a 55. I always have to bring a 55 degree ellipse template. <laughs> that's the way you, you draw their head. Yeah. And if you don't have a 55 degree ellipse template, it's it's almost impossible to freehand that uh, it makes drawing Charlie Brown's head look easy. Because well, I, that... <laughs> yeah, yeah, drawing it, draw, you know, drawing the perfect circle or drawing the perfect ellipse—that's always a challenge. Yep. Yeah. So, so I, I, one of the so the the challenge, in a sense, is really to repress whatever you know element of yourself wants to express itself through the pen, and and to hold to model, as you say, because that's what's necessary 
certainly in animation, right? But but when you're going to do, say, a Johnny Quest comic book or something like that, you've got to make it look, to the average reader anyway, somebody who's not a discerning reader who's deeply interested in comics and cartoonists, you've got to make it look just like Johnny Quest looks on the television show. Exactly. You're trying to you you you're trying to make it look like Doug Wildey drew it, mm-hmm. and um, and it's interesting when you take those those animated characters and and transition them into comic books. Uh, for something like a Scooby Doo, uh, y- you have a tendency to to go in and kind of treat it like you would treat another job. But with Scooby, I was always consciously trying to do things like not spot too many blacks. Not uh, and not create a lot of contrast with the characters where they had hard shadows and stuff because of course, in the animated show, there's you know there the, the characters themselves are laid over the backgrounds with only a few exceptions. There wasn't a lot of of shadow on That's the characters right. themselves. They 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 existed in a very flat kind of way. So I tended to draw them in a comic book that way, and well. uh, it, it was. It's always uh, quite a challenge not to uh, not to get too uh, not to, for lack of a better term, not to get too uh, flowery with it and then and then overdraw them where they're they're not looking like they're supposed to look, you know. And that's in the in the same respect, uh, particularly with peanuts. When I sit down, when I get a script for a for a, a peanuts storybook or a, or whatever, obviously. The idea for me is to stage it in such a way that it's seen, you know, it so that it's 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 not, you know, you're, you're never going to see sweeping camera angles where you're looking down on the characters' heads and forced perspective and things because, of course, Sparky's uh, lens typically was a standard sort of proscenium arch. In other words, to say uh, you're viewing it as if you're looking at a stage play. Right. Your, right. Your, your eye level is very. Your eye level is neither a worm's eye view nor a bird's eye view. You're just looking straight ahead at them, and you're not coming around them in in awkward camera angles. It's, it's not like a. It's not like you know the Batman show in 1966. There's no. There's right. No twisting, there's no twisting of the camera or things like that, and of course, as we know, you know Sparky said many times, those poses and tropes that became repetitious were as much about creating a familiarity and comfort with the viewer. They immediately know what they're looking at. They're immediately settled into the situation. You know, Linus holds the blanket almost exactly the same way every time. Right. Uh, same thing with Lucy and the football and so on and so forth. So that the the reader, in a sense, doesn't really have to work too hard when they come to the comic strip. They're they're entering into familiar territory in which the landscape is well known. So there's not a lot of, you know, the usual, oh, analysis that goes along with driving into new terrain, so to speak, if I'm going to belabor that. Yeah, Anal- ex- yeah, exactly. And that's one of the most that's one of the most interesting things about watching the evolution of Peanuts is. You can see how long it took him to find that aspect of his voice. If you go back and look at the the strips in the the early to mid fifties, uh, they don't have as much of that kind of uh, of a of a repetition of posing and things. Uh, there are some odd angles. There, you know, sometimes uh, it's not the standard pose with Linus holding the blanket mm-hmm. and. Um, there are often very elaborate backgrounds. Of course, part of that has to do with the fact that when he finally got the Sunday page, 
you could really see him spreading his wings and going, you know, I, now I've got a lot of room to draw. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I always thought that was a really amazing uh, bit of calculation on his part to, to take a, a comic, to, to take the aesthetic in such a way that those repetitions and those uh, familiar poses bring the eye to that strip in a way that I don't think anybody else at that time was doing. And, uh, and also worked as a, uh, obviously worked as a competition against um, what was probably the last gasp of the, the incredibly uh, uh, elaborately drawn adventure strip, which used so much spotting of blacks and cross hatching and things like that, that just aren't really present in, in Peanuts. Certainly not as you move towards the later 50s and early 60s. No, not at all. And and certainly not in uh, modern day comic strips. I mean, comics more or less since the 70s, so to speak. Schultz was kind of disparaged, you know, by some of his contemporaries back in the late 50s, early 60s, as his star began to rise and he became more of a presence and somebody who was obviously beginning to dominate the medium. His peers, like uh, Al Cap in particular, is the person I'm thinking of. But there are others too who who sort of disparaged his his simplifications, which you know, from our perspective, we can look back and say, well, those those are really that's quite an intelligent strategy, and it's it's appropriate for the subject matter and it's appropriate for the modern reader. Whereas things such as Little Abner and the kind of elaborately illustrated uh, work that went with it or went with uh, Steve Canyon and Milton Kniff's work. And uh, those things began, that approach began to seem in, in the wake of peanuts began to seem somewhat dated. Whereas, you know, when Schultz started, he started pretty much alone on the comics page uh, with that approach to illustration. And uh, that must've been kind of, because Schultz was a very capable draftsman, it must have been kind of hard for him to to bear that. I think sometimes the the pressure to draw more. Yeah. Oh, certainly. And uh, and of course, also the thing about Cap. I, I think uh, I, I as I recall correct if I recall correctly, I think the thing that Sparky was most offended by was that Cap had inferred that he wasn't a very good cartoonist. Yeah. Uh, as a, as opposed to the you know the entire series of parody strips. Um, and, and yeah, he, he had, uh, you know, what he did in taking what was, uh, you know, almost a magazine style of cartooning, you know, born out of all those Saturday evening post sales yeah. um, that really didn't exist on the, 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 the comics page. I mean, even the even the strips that were that were lighter in mm-hmm. fair in the early in, you look at the early 50s and you look at um and, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but you look at how labored uh, the Dennis the Menace panels are. I mean, mm. you know, mm-hmm. Ketchum draftsmanship's absolutely marvelous. And the, the attention to detail, of yeah. both architectural and structurally in terms of the, what's going on inside the house and all the incidental characters. Right. Uh, all those. And, and there's there's always tons of incidental characters. They're always at the beach and there's a dozen people standing around or. There's the beat cop that's pulled over, uh, Henry or something. Um, there's a lot of, for lack of a better term, showy draftsmanship. Yeah. The, the same thing could certainly be said for the early days of Beetle Bailey before it got oh, simplified. Yeah. But Mort Walker's earliest efforts are extremely, um, are, are extremely kind of uh, 
you know, giving you a lot of bang for your buck in terms of how many, you know, the, the line work and, and yeah. it's a little, it's a, it's a little less so than Hank Ketchum, but it's still very much there. So he really was kind of standing alone in, uh, in, in that respect. And it, it's, it's fascinating. It's funny talking about the incidental characters, how uh, with only a, with a few notable exceptions like summer camp series and some other stuff, um, there wasn't an awful lot, you know, once he, once he got his cast populated the way he needed it, mm. he almost never had to do, you know, a, an incidental crowd scene where you had 52 kids standing around that don't have any, <sighs> that you'll never see again, you know, mm. outside well, of like, like. A yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I'm, I'm listening to what you're saying. It's really interesting. He didn't, and it's not for lack of perhaps wanting to. One, one of the magical things about Peanuts is that Schultz leaves a lot to your imagination. And this is one of the things that has always bothered me, and forgive me, but I've never been a big fan of the animated films for a variety of reasons. But the, the main reason has to do with the fact that in the comic strip, Schultz leaves so much to your imagination. And it seems so important to me anyway, in reading the strip in the fifties and sixties in particular, but even later on that your imagination fills in for what's in Snoopy's doghouse, that it's not illustrated, right? That, that, uh, the world outside of their neighborhood is not illustrated. We don't see the opposing baseball team playing Charlie Brown's team. We just see, you know, for the most part, we just see our team, you know, Charlie Brown's team and, and, yep. uh, Schroeder with the catcher's mask on. And, and that's about it, but we don't see the other team. It's left to your imagination. And it, as it, it seems to me that that's such an important part of the sensibility of the strip and of the the magic of its world that we as readers fill in that space. And I, I guess that's probably one of the most challenging aspects of taking anything like that and, and putting it into the the mm -hmm. animated medium. And Peanuts yeah. was probably Peanuts was probably more challenging than anything up to that point because for uh, you know the, the, look at the two strips. Uh, well, one of the two of these strips that obviously influenced Sparky most of all were Thimble Theater and Crazy Cat. Neither of those strips really play to the offstage aspect of things. So certainly in, in, in Popeye's case, you know, he fit the animation mold immediately. You know, I mean, it was, his, oh, yeah. You know, his, his antics are larger than life, his, his physicality, the fights and everything like that. And... You know, I think as far as the peanuts, um, the half hours are concerned, most of them are are very, very uh, successful because in that narrow amount of time, in 24, 25 minutes worth of screen time, they did a, a fine, fine job of mostly uh, respecting uh, where Sparky had put his walls in terms of the fantasy aspects. But then when you go to the features, obviously it's much more difficult. Uh, the first one is, is you know, uh, um, uh, Boy Named Charlie Brown is, of course, right. in many respects, uh, kind of a expansion on themes that were in, you know, um, Charlie Brown's All Stars and some other stuff like that. And then expanding onto the onto the, um, the spelling bee. But I think that one is impressive how successful it is because 
it somehow manages, and, and in many respects, it's quite haunting to watch, especially when they're in New York at night when Linus is out looking for his blanket with Snoopy. Mm-hmm. They, they managed in that one to keep at least to keep everyone as a, as a kid. If you remember the, uh, yeah. the doorman uh, when they go into the competition is just a little boy the same size as Linus. Yeah. And, Brown. and so there, there, we know there must be chaperones. We know there has to be an adult bus driver to drive them there, to drive Charlie Brown in New York. And we see the long shots of the traffic jam with the honking cars and everything. But still, in that particular instance, the, 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 um, the uh, uh, spell, as it, it were, is not broken. And the same right. thing applies for Snoopy Come Home. Um, which is, and, and also uh, with um, with uh, a race for your life, Charlie Brown, which yeah. uh, is interesting because that came out in I, I think 1978, and a lot of the people that I uh, encounter at conventions and things like that, that seems to be uh, their first Peanuts movie. Isn't that something? Uh, it's it's the last one that actually manages to completely uh, keep it keep the peanuts characters contained in a child's universe and um and then uh uh the first time they let it all hang out is in um uh, bon voyage charlie brown and don't come back and i think it just reached a point where there were simply too many situations where Mm. they could they're just there's only so many ways you can stage things to avoid (laughs) presenting an adult in the situation And um, I remember when I saw uh, when I saw it in the, the theater, uh, when they get to the part where they're at Heathrow and they have a, um, a, a porter uh, pushing their bags along and it's a, a full sized adult. And it's it's very obviously a, a Bill Melendez style design. Yeah, uh, it's not it's not sort of like Sparky's way of thinking from, you know, teenager is not a disease or or some of his other. Uh, 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 strips where he was drawing it, it. It doesn't look like the people that show up in it's only a game or stuff like <laughs> right, that. Right. Uh, and so in that particular movie, uh, <laughs> they had that shot. And then of course, when we get to the uh, the Chateau of the Bad Neighbor, um, the uh, the sinister uncle or, or the the one who's who's causing trouble or whatever is seen. Uh, not seen, he's sort of off stage, but you can hear him, so he's not wah 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 wah. <laughs> he's an active adult voice, and that is, yeah. to my way of thinking, an extremely disconcerting thing. Yeah. But unfortunately, without that voice, the plot just doesn't move forward yeah. because yeah. then you have to start asking yourself questions about why there are a bunch of little kids in a pub, you know, yeah. at night, yeah. and, and so so it, it it's. I appreciated why those things had to happen because otherwise some of those stories just simply can't really get told, but it it definitely was, it must've been a, 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 an increasing challenge every time. And, uh, and it also, I think to a certain extent begins to strain on the, uh, the suspension of disbelief, you know, when they get on the plane and they're being served and stuff, well, you know, that there's, you know, that there are, around they're surrounded by adults just as with the strip we know they're surrounded by adults in in the case of the strip it, it's so much easier for sparky to uh, to pull the strings or 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 uh, hide them if you want to extend that really mm-hmm. clumsy metaphor uh, 
and and sometimes even he uh, will have a strip situation or an idea that doesn't necessarily lend itself to the way that he's staging it with just the kids. There's a series of strips in the early 60s, as I recall, where um, Linus is going to school, and the first time, I believe, this crops up, Lucy is at the, at the, uh, at the stoop at the front door, and she says something like, oh, I've got a doctor's appointment this morning, and she says something to him, and he goes off, and I forget the gag, uh, you know, become educated or something like that. Right, and, right. And, and, and that in reading is, it's okay, it's okay. I saw what he was trying to get. He was trying to get a, he was, he was perhaps tempted by a kind of strip that's a, a parent ushering their child off to school kind of a thing. And he did that several more times with Lucy, but then dropped any pretext about explaining where Lucy was going. Those strips to me are... As a, as a child, I found them extremely uh, awkward. Well, why isn't Lucy going to school? Right. You know, uh, the, the, the birth of, of Rerun has a similar thing that the buildup yeah. to that, as the buildup to Rerun's birth is that uh, uh, Linus is, gets thrown out of the house by Lucy. And yeah. I always found it very fascinating that the, the Fantagraphics series reprinted that in its entirety. And prior to that, whether it was the uh, the Fawcett Crest or um, uh, Holt paperbacks or the Peanuts Parade books that started up in the late 70s, whenever they would reprint that series, they would start it almost from the middle where Linus is uh, hanging out with Snoopy and his Joe Cool persona at the doghouse. And they took out and they never reprinted the series, the, the, the buildup where mm-hmm. Lucy literally physically throws Linus out of the house. <laughs> and then and then forbids him to come back. And I, I've I've speculated and, and, and maybe Lex or, or Paige or somebody would have a lot more insight than than I would on this. But I've always speculated about why those strips were not uh, reprinted in their entirety prior to the Fantagraphic series. And I wondered if uh, it might have been uh, something Sparky was doing actively because it's an interesting series of strips. And Lucy is just mean as a snake. She's oh, yeah. At, absolutely almost at her nastiest in that series of strips and then of course she gets her big come up at the end um and in the in that and i'm really i'm coming around to a point i swear and uh, <laughs> really when you and and then at a certain point line uh, charlie brown asks linus well, why 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 are you still thrown out hasn't your why isn't your mother letting you back in the house and um linus says well she's not home she's been in the hospital for a few days or something and uh, and it, it starts to make sense, but it takes a long time. Sparky takes a few good days to get to that explanation. And, and of course, he's playing with the he's playing with compression and distending time in a way that he always did. But reading it on a daily basis as a, as a newspaper reader, mm-hmm. your tendency is to feel that Linus has been living with Snoopy for what three or four straight days. Yeah, sister barring the door. And right. his parents unable to like get him back in the house, and those are the sorts of things that that are a unique challenge, uh, unique only to peanuts. And then these are self-imposed situations that Sparky set up. But sometimes the narrative uh, presents a harsher challenge, or 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 and 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 they're, they're marvelous strips. And you know, once or twice, of course, he he broke his own rules to do things where the 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 parents would speak and those strips 
really kind of stick out, not in yeah, a negative sure. way, but they're quite unique. Like the one where Charlie Brown's mother tells him how to spell how many G's are in goggles <laughs> or, um, uh, or, or uh, Lucy is um, uh, Lucy and Linus are coloring. It's a Sunday page from the, I think the late fifties. And um, uh, Linus yells, mom, Lucy won't give me any crayons. And yeah. Lucy yell and Lucy's mother, the, the, their mother yells back, you know, give him some crayons. Said, of course, remember, she gives him three white, yeah. black, gray yeah. and sends him on his That's, merry way. I uh, love this. <laughs> That's a marvelous strip. Uh, yeah. But uh, those sorts of things uh, are unique to uh, are, are so unique to the comics page. And then to take it, it it's a it's a Herculean effort. It's amazing that it worked because, of course, in, you know, the, the early 60s, one of the great, great drivers of humor in the strip is is you know snoopy's inner monologue yeah and uh, and uh, it's and of course also the way that it's set up more often than not the other kids the, the in the strip can hear snoopy's monologue they it seems that way back to him. <laughs> it, I, it, what comes to mind many times is the uh, uh the series of strips where uh lucy uh gets Snoopy to be her skating partner for the ice show competition. Yeah. yeah. And of course they're all this getting up at five o'clock in the morning stuff. And, you know, Snoopy's saying things like this. Oh, you know, the moon is still out. And then Lucy turns and says, Oh, it's good for you to get up. So they're having an exchange. She's right. thinking he's, he's talk, he's talking in his head, but she can hear him. Right. And she's reacting to him. And even to the end of that. And by the way, that's, that's uh, almost, that's a high water mark as far as I'm concerned with Lucy and Snoopy as a combo, partially because it's such an absurdist thing that a little girl would decide to choose a dog. Mm. Say that out loud, a dog <laughs> or your skate, an ice skating partner. Right. And second off, you, you get at the end of that, the, the marvelous, marvelous payoff with Snoopy's ego stripped and laid bare how exactly fragile his little fantasy world is that yeah. he can't go out and skate in front of real people and that he has the nerve to run away at the end and leave Woodstock there and that marvelous last panel where Lucy yells I'm not gonna skate with a stupid bird <laughs> somehow or other the idea of skating with a bird is less palatable than skating with a dog yeah. And I, I just and, and then, of course, the follow up at the end where she comes and teases him at the doghouse. Here's the world famous figure skater doing his double axel. Ha, you know, and all that. <laughs> so so the kids hear Snoopy. That's part of the joke. Yeah. And, and they they had obviously they made a, a conscious decision. And, 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 and in retrospect, almost certainly the correct one that he would be mute, that they would go yeah. the as as, you know, Lee Mendelssohn said many times, they would go the way of. Harpo Marx and that mm -hmm. it's all pantomime. But what you at that point you've you've literally you're still you're trying to bring this thing to life and you've taken away one of the biggest guns you've got. Yeah. Why and, not? No. and to do that and to succeed and to succeed in such a way that you've created this this alternate version of mm -hmm. this thing that's already a beloved American institution. I mean, it's been right. around for 15 years that's by the time that's yeah. forever in comic strip years and right it's been there for 15 years and you have the audacity to put it on television and cast the voices after people have sat there for years and years hearing their own voices in their heads 
Yeah. And I mean, yes, they they noodled around. They had little blips, the the Ford Falcon commercials and Tennessee yep. Ernie Ford stuff and things like that. But those are those are extremely small baby steps. And then to go from that to to Charlie Brown Christmas to to you know one of the most solemn you know uh, need to tread carefully aspects of of any you know character like that uh, and certainly obviously there was a, a even though it was all played for laughs you know Sparky certainly had a, a, a unique relationship with the aspects of Christmas you know he said many times um, that he wasn't at all comfortable with the idea of Santa Claus because of the disappointment uh, or children of poverty and things like that. And, um, and so it's just to do that. And it's breathtaking to look back and go, wow, not only did it succeed, it <laughs> succeeded in a way that literally um, it, it's, it's, it's almost incomprehensible how big a role that half hour show plays in Americana and and how we react to the holidays, the concepts of commercialism and and the grappling with religious things and 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 also just it, it's it's just amazing to me and 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 to watch again and again and again and again and and warts and all because yeah. it, it, it's you know certainly there are places where the characters are so gloriously gleefully off model. Oh my God! Yeah. Rushing so much to yeah, get it done, and doing so and fast. Bill Melendez was totally hamstrung by the the budget, right? And um, and that the turnaround time, and and to to come out and still be what it is, um, that's yeah. that's the sort of thing that it, it, if you under if you know anything about what's involved in putting on a half hour show of animation and all the plates that have to be spinning, and how every the tiniest little thing can just screw it up so bad it, it's an amazing work hey this is a new commercial it's not the same old commercial it's not the one you've heard the last two times it's a new one but it's for the same thing the same thing is go to jeffgrogan.com g-e-o-f-f-g-r-o-g-a-n.com check out my work that's all i'm asking you to do i'm not asking you to buy anything i don't even think there's anything there to buy well maybe there is but uh, i can't remember but anyway go there and look at my work that's what i want you to do look at my work check it out look at my comics go to spikingthelens.com that's my new comic strip it's got lots of neat stuff on it i'm having a lot of fun with it i hope that you'll have a lot of fun looking at it and I don't want to take up your time, but make sure you go to jeffgrogan.com. That's G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N.com or spikingthelens.com. But I'd prefer jeffgrogan.com because it's got everything, plus a link to spikingthelens.com. So you might want to just go there and take care of it. And so do that. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And let's get back to the interview. What, what was the turnaround time on it? Uh, it I think they got started in August. In I August. They, I, I believe they got started in and August. It, and it aired early December. Yeah, yeah. Or is it just, yeah, yeah. amazing. It's amazing. Well, you know, that's that show is. I th- I think for a lot of people, that's their first uh, connection to Peanuts is through oh, that, sure. through that show. And once you've seen that show, the the template for the characters and for the world that Schultz has created is pretty much embedded in your your mind. And uh, a lot of people come to the strip after they've seen that television show and the movies as well so it's kind of interesting you know lex fajardo and i were talking uh when he was on about you know how how is it that young people are coming to the to the comic now are they getting back to the source material or or are they you know focused 
primarily on the films? Do they, do they, when they think of these characters and they think of uh, Charlie Brown and they think of Linus and Lucy, and they think of the world that Schultz created, are they thinking of the, the world through, you know, the medium of their view screens and, and rather than through the strip itself, which is kind of an interesting question because for myself anyway, and I'm, I'm, guessing for you too but for myself the strip was first and and then came everything else uh yeah. you know after the fact so so my vision of of peanuts is very much determined by my experience of reading about reading the the strip itself and the characters in the world that schultz built so everything comes later seems you know after the fact and and sort of secondary but to those who are coming from the opposite end it would seem i would think primarily it would be the strip would be the last thing they get to and if they get to it at all which i hope yeah, and I, I think that yeah and, and we certainly every, every one of us that's involved certainly hopes that the strip eventually becomes something that's discovered but yeah. I, I think you're correct it went from being the engine to being the caboose yeah and um, <laughs> and, and in 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 some cases you know, in, in, in my case, I, I came to them, mm -hmm. frankly, almost at the same time. Uh, uh -huh. what, because of, you look back in the, the late 60s and early 70s, and you see that when you, when you go to the, the, not the comic book store, because there was no direct market, right. but when you're going to the 7-Eleven or Magic Market or in the book bag or the book bay or whatever newsstand, you go in and right. there's the same... There's, there's the same, it's not a repetitious thing, but it, it's inexpensive, and there's the opportunity to uh, pick up one of the faucet paperbacks yep. and go, oh, there's one I've never seen before, you know, the unsinkable Charlie Brown. Ooh, I haven't got that one. And you get that, and then you go over and, you know, comics are, uh, you know, I, I tell my kids all the time, I say, you know, when I started buying comics, you could buy five comics for a buck, you know? Yep. Yeah, and, you know, awesome. <laughs> I, I remember the I remember when the price jumped from twenty to twenty five cents. Me too. Kind of horrifying, and I was like, uh oh. Yeah. And well, uh, I, you know, you'd go and and you, you got a little you got a little taste of everything. You you, you got a, maybe uh, picked up a Spider Man or FF, and then typically speaking, the places most of the places I remember comics would always have two spinner racks. Yep. One spinner rack would be sort of half Marvel, half DC. And then the other spinner rack would be Harvey's and Archie's yep. and, and whatever else they had managed to, to cram on there. So you get like an Archie and you get a Richie Rich or Casper, Spooky or whatever. And you pick up the, the Peanuts paperback. Uh, also, uh, it always was odd for me because I almost never read Peanuts in the, in the towns I lived in. It was almost always in the evening paper. And right. my father preferred the morning papers. Uh -huh. So I was always very frustrated. Uh, sometimes <laughs> sometimes I would get to read the evening paper in the school library the next day and, and catch mm -hmm. up what was going on. But I almost never read Peanuts when it was coming out in the paper until I became an adult. And even and when I moved here to Atlanta uh, in the mid-80s, there was still the, uh, the journal and the Constitution were separate papers. And so I made sure that I pick up the paper with peanuts in it. So that was when I first started reading peanuts in the paper in the 80s. And um, up to that point, it was just sort of a fishing expedition for uh, for the, the paperbacks. And then, of course, I think in 1976 or seven, probably seven, 
they started uh, publishing the the uh, Peanuts Parade books with the the, the the big books with the glossy covers. Those were heaven just because they were so big compared to the to the uh, paperbacks. And of course, they didn't have some of the aberrations. The the paperbacks sometimes I found unforgivable because they would break the strips up in those funny ways where they'd have to have a staff artist extend panels, mm-hmm. draw rain out to the side and stuff. And it was so clearly, you know, it was so clearly not the way it was supposed to be viewed, but it was the only way that you could get it. Uh, right. And but with the 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 uh, parade paperbacks, you know, butchered the Sundays a little bit just for the the sake of the fact that the format was more uh, vertical than horizontal. Mm-hmm. But but otherwise, they were revelatory. revelatory. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. I absolutely adored the Fawcett books as a kid because, well, they were always around and there were stacks of them, you know, throughout my neighborhood. And we as kids in the neighborhood, we shared these back and forth. Mm -hmm. And uh, unbeknownst to me, my mother was buying them as well. And and so they were all over the place. And then eventually Holt Reinhardt started putting out some hardcover collections like Peanuts Treasury and Sandlot Treasury and stuff like that. We had those too. And I loved reading them uh, like that. There's there's just something about the a group of strips together you were immersed in schultz's world you know it was different from the newspaper wherein schultz was part of this overall tableau and yep. and you know instead you you were in schultz's world and in the world of peanuts uh you know isolated from everything else i used to love that experience because it was really the only way you could get it but oh gosh there's so many things that w- you've touched on that i i, I want to sort of mine over a little bit um so one of the things you were we we way back in the beginning you were talking about uh you know Mort Walker and Schultz and and their approach to well okay we got into this discussion about about elaborating on the strip and and creating this broader world that's in the animated world of of peanuts and and how Schultz every now and again alludes to that and early on in 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 the strip we do see those moments where in like in those early Sundays where Lucy and and Charlie Brown are golfing, which yes. is an odd set of circumstances to begin with. But then they're golfing. You know the strips. They're golfing around with with a group of adults around. I which, had legs everywhere. Yeah, I know. <laughs> amazing, right? Uh, really strange to go back and look at. And you know when you read that that it, it's absolutely Schultz was absolutely right, and I'm sure he felt like instantaneously following the publication of those that he was meant to go off in a you know for peanuts he had to go off in a different direction. Right. And, uh, but, but that's not what I wanted to get into. What I wanted to touch on was what you, you brought up Mort Walker and, and talked about his approach to Beetle Bailey early on. And it's interesting to compare the stylistic differences of Mort Walker's approach to comics and, and illustrating comics versus Schultz. They're, they're both based in shape and, and simple shapes as, as sort of the skeleton of the characters. But Mort Walker develops this very stylized language of abstraction that is is very very formal uh, as opposed to where schultz goes schultz has a very shape-based orientation also but there is a kind of fluid organic quality to it that is uniquely schultz whereas mort walker it's it's almost as though he could have created and seth does this i i'm you you know the cartoonist seth he is um yeah he's he's 
remarked upon utilizing stamps and he's done this. He's created a series of stamps in which he tells little autobiographical stories in his sketchbook. And, and rather than illustrating, he just uses the stamps because they serve, uh, you know, the, the purpose of replicating his, the simple features of his face, his glasses or whatnot. And he repeats them when necessary. Mort Walker almost has like developed by, I guess the early sixties, mid sixties, he's developed a language that is, is highly formalized, uh, in terms of his characters. It's very different from where Schultz goes. It's interesting that there's, I, you know, we were talking about, uh, some of the physical tropes, like what yeah. Lucy, when she's holding the football and Walker has those too. When Beetle runs a certain way, yeah. it's pretty much the same run over and over and over again, just like Charlie Brown pitching the baseball is the same two or three poses over and over and over again. And I think the, I think that the, uh, the difference between how you feel about the art is you look at uh, Sparky's drawing and it has an organic quality to it. And if you look at Mort's drawings they have a machined look to them <laughs> yes. and and i don't mean that in a negative i mean no nor do i amazing pen work uh, but, but what i what i'm what i think the difference in there is the difference that uh is it is part of the challenge that i have when i work with the peanuts characters which is to say uh sparky uh, approached his inking the same way that uh steve ditko did and uh, the same way that Carl Barks did when he was working on um, his uh, comic books with uh, Donald and Uncle Scrooge and stuff, which is to say the penciling aspect is largely just skeletons, a, mm-hmm. a circle for a head and maybe the tiniest uh, bit of, of um, the tiniest mm-hmm. bit of a roadmap for where things are going. Right. And then when you when he goes into the inking, that's where he makes all his decisions. All the decisions are made spontaneously with the pen as far as how things are going to happen. And that gives Peanuts an incredibly organic quality, even in the years when Sparky has is at the most with his control of his line form. It has a great snap to it, a great there's snap because there's confidence and mm-hmm. there's immediacy to the moment. He's not mm-hmm. laboring the inking. The inking is immediate. It's 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 done and then move on to the next panel. Uh, boom, boom, boom. And there's uh, there's there's great showmanship in that and great flair and great humanity to it. Now, yes. in something like um, in something like Beetle Bailey or certainly High and Lois, where you have uh, Dick Brown, who was just a master cartoonist, yeah. you know, you look at those and you realize that's not how, and if someone wants to correct me if I'm wrong, I then with the whole hypothesis, <laughs> hypothesis just sinks, but that's fine. Um, but to my way of looking at those things, my belief is there was a lot more work in the pencil stage than yeah. there, it, it, almost a 50-50 split between the pencil and the ink in terms of getting all the lines. I think all the emotional decisions and the movement decisions and everything were made in the tight pencil phase and then the inking much more precise it's much more controlled and as a result it has a a really uh what would be referred to as a slick kind of quality Mm -hmm. to it um and it's just it's it's perfect it it get the inking is is perfect there's no right you know because you're you're following meticulously 
the pencil lines. If you look at the look at Garfield, it's the same sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. All the, Gar- all the decisions in Garfield are made in the pencil stage before you get to the inks, uh, and as a result, there is a machine-like quality to those uh, inks. And once again, I'm not criticizing that because that's something that in the animated medium, depending on what character you're drawing, it's incredibly important to maintain that kind of an inking style almost uh, like you'd see in a a model pack where Mm -hmm. the characters might have been inked more with a brush or something. So there's not a lot of organic quality to it. Now, with Peanuts, this is the trouble, or the not trouble per se, uh, but this is the trap that you have to be able to navigate when you're working in Peanuts for comic books, children's books, licensing art, and things like that. You're trying to make it look like Sparky drew it. But it's approved by, let's just say that there are many eyes that that cross over that piece of art and many people who have, uh, um, correctly so, an opinion about what's going on. Your pencil artwork is approved before you ink it. So the pencil artwork has to be absolutely, perfectly, precisely drawn. Well, that's not the way Sparky did it. Right, right. So you're drawing it out perfectly 100%. You could literally Xerox it and it's done. There's no, there's no, I'm going to fix this later. There's no, I'm going to noodle around with this. This is the way Charlie Brown's hand is going to look. Okay. Everyone looks at it. And if you get the thumbs up, you get your, you you get the the go ahead to move to inks. And now you have to ink it to look spontaneous, even though it's not spontaneous. So you're trying to manufacture that snap. You're trying to manufacture that immediacy when it's not there to begin with. So you're trying not to labor something that you've already labored. How do you do that? And as as a result, it's uh, it's very, very tricky to get it to look that way. Uh, When we did the graphic novel for Race for Your Life, Charlie Brown. Right. uh, Mostly because a decision was made, uh, mostly because of time constraints that the we were not going to I wasn't going to ink it after I penciled it we I penciled it and then after it was approved uh in photoshop the 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 pencil lines were you know crushed down flat to black and then it was just colored in the the computer and and that is a ridiculous simplification of all the all the hard work of the people at at CMS Creative who took my stuff and made it just sing i mean um uh cat who did the colors and everything and oh, yeah. and um and and the, the people there who were processing the files and stuff that's that's intense labor yeah equal yeah. to the intensity that i put into the drawing uh if not more so um because i honestly think i'm probably having more fun uh, <laughs> although coloring can be a lot of fun too coloring can be a lot of fun uh but but in doing so, that worked out very well because I was ser- I was in the service of trying to make something look like the animated specials. And by the time the specials had gotten to that point, obviously they were no longer hand inking the cells. They were using xerography. So the lines are thinner. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're more, they have a more pencil-like quality. Mm-hmm. And as a result, it, we were able, I think, to make a product that looked more like the movie and less like the strip. And in that case, that's what we were trying to do. Sure. So, and you do... A remarkable job of it too. I mean, it's it's a really beautiful book, and I I really quite 
impressed honestly with with how well you ho- I think you hold closer to the original models if you will than than Melendez could or his studio could working in the in the animated films there there's you just have a great knack for capturing the essence really uh, the look of Schultz's renderings of his characters and and I think you've done a great job and I'm looking at your book and I'm looking at uh, the Dell collection that came out last year and the work of Jim Sasseville and Dale Hale in particular, those guys, they were very good. Uh, I, I found them to be very good, but, but I think what you're doing in the case that you're talking about the spontaneity and the ability to capture that flair that is in Charles Schultz's work, uh, I think you do it admirably. And, and I'm really, uh, awed by that because I know that you, you, as you said, you've worked in so many different, uh, with so many different licensed properties and you get the look of Scooby-Doo or you get the look of Johnny Quest or, or brave and bold Batman from the animated series, which is a totally different look and it, and hues more to that, uh, machine like quality that we were talking about in regard to Mort Walker. In this case, there's a flair and a spontaneity there uh, that that is really rare when it comes to adaptations of of Schultz's uh, style. And I, well, I, what happened? What, what happened with that particular book? And it's a unique situation. I don't think that will ever uh, come up again. The the fun in the drawing in that instance was that I was trying to. Uh, I was trying to draw something that's based on a movie, but mm-hmm. I had been given a certain amount of an editorial mandate and editorial freedom by Lex to make it look more like Sparky drew it. And, and as, as a result, I was able to do things that blended or fused the two universes together in a way that I don't think they come to, they certainly don't come together often. Uh, and in doing so, I had a lot of fun with the fact that, you know, uh, the, the cat, uh, Brutus the cat, yeah. obviously is Bill Melendez's design mm-hmm. because, you know, Sparky only drew one cat and Farron doesn't look anything like that. <laughs> no. And um, and he wasn't ever happy with the cat anyway. So <laughs> uh, so I was able to take these things and uh, and the bullies too. the yeah. bullies in and of themselves. I, I went back and looked at the model pack from the movie. And from animator to animator, they change a little bit here and there. But basically, you've got a tall one, uh, a, a medium one, and then the heavy set one who's very wide, who sort of looks like Charlie Brown from a rougher side of town if he eaten <laughs> work. You know, and, um, and those things, I was able to kind of push them a little back to Schultz, even though they only one of the three of them really has a Schultz equality. The tall one seems to me. And, and this is pure speculation. It's absolutely speculative. The tall one looks to me as if Bill Melendez had looked through some of Sparky's collections and came across two different uh, slightly older kids. One of them is the bully in the series of summer camp strips where Charlie Brown meets Roy, who right. yells at Charlie Brown and, and, hey, kid, what's your name? Charlie Brown, hey, get a load of the kid with the funny name. And uh, the other instance is the Sunday, marvelous, marvelous Sunday page, where Charlie Brown uh, pitches it, hits it, it, gets hit, and Lucy says, you pitched it, go get it yourself, and then he ends up on the other, he ends up in these other kids' team. Oh, right, 
the older <laughs> boy is like, hey, you, you got a mitt. You want to play? And <laughs> the gag is Charlie Brown says, I wonder how this will look in the box score or whatever. Or whatever. <laughs> uh, those two characters, there's a little bit of each of them in the tall bully. Uh, the one bully who has the buck teeth, that is about as, as, as far removed from a Sparky design as you could possibly get. Yeah. Um, and so what I did was I started taking their hands and tried to, I tried to put little Schultzy touches here and there. And I, I had a, a certain creative freedom to, certainly in the background case, obviously the trees, sometimes there's a Sparky tree and sometimes <laughs> there's not because it did, there's only so much you can fill in with Sparky's yeah. style of drawing a tree. And the same thing with the tents, the same thing with a lot of the incidental details. Uh, some of the things that come up when you're rendering these characters are, are, are very interesting. Like um, uh, the uh, um, typically speaking, when I sit down to draw the Peanuts characters, my line of thinking is roughly from about 1963 to 1966 in terms of how I want the characters to look. Right. So sometimes... And sometimes things change and you evolve as you're going. But then if a modern character is popped in there, like someone, say, Franklin, who appeared mm -hmm. in the late 60s, well, by the late 60s, the, the, the way that the characters are, are their height is a little bit different. Yeah. The, the thickness in their necks is a little yes. bit different. Yes. Uh, there's all kinds of things that are going on. Franklin's head is, in many respects, not much different than Charlie Brown's. Right. At that era in the late 60s. But if I'm drawing Charlie Brown looking like 1962 or so, his head is much more circular and much less oval in that era. His yeah. neck is considerably thicker. He's yeah. shorter and yep. he has a slightly younger look. So I'm trying to blend all these things. It's especially uh, critical when you get to there's 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 some stuff in there with Sally and Eudora. I mean, that is a character who absolutely has no business standing next to 60s iterations. Right, uh, <laughs> right. Characters, but you kind of got to bend it. You kind of you have to sort of. They're they're pliable. I mean, I'm trying to draw, I'm trying to draw Sally not long after you know, sort of looking a little bit like Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown Sally, yeah. and a little bit further along. She's not a toddler anymore. Her hair has gotten to that point where it sort of has that Bozo the Clown quality to it, <laughs> where it's extending out about as far as it possibly can in either side. And of course, then you know, as the '70s come in. Her head gets bigger and her hair shrinks back down right. to the sides. Right. And 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 also certainly with a lot of the uh, with a lot of the characters, a lot of the girl characters from the 80s on, Sparky has a tendency with most of them to give them some kind of accessory in their hair. Peggy Jean has the little bow. Eudora mm -hmm. has the the funny hat. Um, right. You know, uh, uh, tapioca pudding has bows and things like that. Molly Volley has a hat. You know, yep. at a certain point in the game, almost all of his newly introduced girl characters have something going on in their hair, <laughs> as a, as opposed to Marcy or Peppermint Patty or certainly Lucy and and Violet uh, and, and so on. You know, there, there's there's exceptions. I mean, Sally has the little bow, and I guess Patty has a bow on one side of her head, but a lot, most of the, the female characters up into the mid seventies just have hair. And, yeah. and then suddenly I, and I just noticed this one night when I was sort of trying to, to flesh out, uh, there's one scene towards the end of that graphic novel where they're all getting on buses. And I just, you know, sometimes when you're running out of gas at the end of a long form project, you start thinking of little things to entertain yourself. 
And, uh, uh, you know, Jason had just written something about, you know, have a, crowds of kids getting on their buses. And, and of course, when you're drawing peanuts, uh, it's a lot like, you know, the, uh, there are certain things that are simply cannot be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am never, I, I would consider it absolute sacrilege to, to and, and also I don't think it would fly for three seconds, to draw a crowd scene and just kind of make up my own peanutsy sort right. of characters. So right. if you look in scenes like where they're getting on the bus yep. or the food fight scene, every one of those characters has been in a peanut strip somewhere. There are <laughs> characters in that food fight scene that show up at the school party where Peppermint, the, the turnabout party where Snoopy takes Peppermint Patty and she decks the kid who says, hey, who's your funny looking boyfriend? Right. And uh, the same way that uh, when they're getting on the bus, I, I threw, you know, Harold Angel and uh, uh, Roy Ann Hobbs. Mm-hmm. That was another thing, too. I noticed Roy Ann Hobbs is a baseball cap. And uh, I drew uh, Truffles, who has, you know, stuff in her hair and things like that. And and, and, and so, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to uh, every once in a while, I'll be like, OK, I just need an incidental character. I just need an incidental character. Nobody cares about. Wait a minute. What about. Uh, uh, wait a minute. What about the two girls that Snoopy's flirting with when they go skiing and he meets the snow bunnies, you know, and things like that. So, so depth of appreciation for the strip has been a, a critical, um, a big benefit in terms of staging wide shots or, or crowds and things like that. And uh, that was, uh, you know, one of the other things, challenges there uh, that, that aren't present in you know, it certainly weren't present when the animated pieces specials were being done. I mean, one of the better early specials, I think, is You're in Love, Charlie Brown, um, because it, it, it plays so well on the little red haired girl. And as a, as a matter of fact, certain aspects of that uh, half hour um, are, are, are sort of echoed in the CGI Peanuts movie. Yeah. Um, with, uh, I think, Peggy Jean sort of standing in for the little red haired girl. But uh, there's a number of scenes where Charlie Brown is trying to catch the little red-haired girl before she gets on the bus, and there's long crowd shots of kids running past him, uh, and, 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 and there's some known characters. But the rest of the commodities are all just things that Bill Melendez sketched in, and obviously Sparky looked at and went, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and those are, uh, actually, as an animator, my favorite moment in that is this hilarious flub uh, and at the end where Charlie Brown is like, I've got to do it. I've got to get to her before she gets on that bus. Cause it's the last day of school, if you recall. And, um, and so as the crowd runs by him at the beginning of the crowd is Linus. And at the end of the crowd is Linus. He runs <laughs> by exactly twice in the same crowd. And that's the sort of mistake that likely would have been made, uh, with, with technique that was used to, to uh, repeat characters for a run cycle or something. Sure. Those sorts of mistakes are actually fairly easy to make. Um, but I always thought that was really funny. And those are things, it's funny that you bring up the Dell collections uh-huh. because one of the interesting aspects, business aspects that we all have to attend to playing in this, whenever a book comes out, I always refer to my thanks to Lex and Paige and everybody and for letting me play in the sandbox. <laughs> the best sandbox in the world. But um, one of the things that is um, that requires an awful lot of discussion, debate, clarification, approval, is that when the Dell books were being done, mm-hmm. well, Jim and Dale 
Sparky was sitting right there. Yeah. And it right by him. And as I understand it, and I might be incorrect about this, I believe Sparky may have actually inked a lot of, if not of all of the faces uh, for consistency. I, I'm not sure if I'm correct on that. Lex probably knows. Uh, so I don't right. want to speak out of turn there. But he was there and he could go, yep, that's great. Go for it. Right. And, 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 and of course, obviously, both of those men were trusted, had yep. worked for him extensively, and mm. he knew what kind of product he was going to get. Likewise, when Bill Melendez populated uh, a, a scene in, in a movie or a, a half hour show, mm -hmm. that was obviously going to him and Lee uh, Mendelson were going to go up to going to go up to, uh, you know, uh, Sebastopol or, or uh, Santa Rosa or wherever and sit down in the office and take a look at this. And yes, that's fine. And maybe fix that or don't do that. And, and there was a, there was an immediacy to it. Well, now we are left and, and I don't mean this to sound haughty or, or, uh, but the people are left people like, uh, Lex and Paige and, and of course, obviously, you know, Jeannie are left to safeguard and secure a legacy. Yeah. And so, the immediacy is not there anymore. We don't know what Sparky would do with these things. Right. So people have to, by a common consent, decide, well, how is this going to move forward? And that's unique. That is unique to any, uh, and I, once again, I might not be right here, but I'm going to get forceful like I am. <laughs> uh, that is unique to any other licensed situation that I have, ever encountered with a character even characters that are extremely beloved bugs bunny is mm -hmm. a joy to draw i love bugs bunny bugs bunny has a hundred fathers and yeah. mothers yeah and um and there's a chuck jones bugs bunny and there's right. a chris freeling bugs bunny and there's a tex avery bugs bunny and a bob clampett and a bob mckimson yeah. and they're all still bugs bunny but they're yeah. all bugs bunny through a slightly different lens yes that's right yeah. and it's the same thing with scooby-doo scooby-doo is the product of Iwo Takamoto's design work, uh, I think Jerry Eisenberg, and, and obviously the production and writing of uh, Ken Ruby and Joe Spears, things like that. Um, but he's been drawn by so many hands, and so many people have taken him and reinterpreted him. There was that pup named Scooby-Doo in the 80s, which was sort yeah. of obviously influenced by Bakshi's Mighty Mouse, with, with John Kay and you know, Bob Camp coming on later, Ren and Stimpy and things. So, you know, uh, same thing with Batman, same thing with uh, Superman, same thing with any of those characters. And and as a result, there is a, a, a obviously on a corporate level, all of these characters have to be safeguarded. You don't want to destroy a franchise. But I think there is a lot less of the uh, caution and and un, and. and totally necessary baby steps that have to be taken in these productions because same thing with Archie. Everybody loves Archie and Jughead and all that sort of stuff. But I mean, they've been reinvented and now there's that adult versions and there's, you know, thing with zombies and there's the Riverdale <laughs> soap opera and those kinds of things. Peanuts simply cannot be filtered that way. Yeah. yeah. Because in doing so, there is great risk, incredible risk. Yeah. And, um, and so I, I approached, I have approached uh, the drawing of these books and comics and, and other things with a, a, a kind of a, of a, a, a reverence that I wouldn't give to 
other characters, even characters that mean a great deal to me emotionally. You know, Don Rosa has has written extensively about how there's a great danger in in uh, in investing too much of your own emotion or love, for a lack of a better word, in these characters that you're working with because you want to work with them so bad uh, that you'll literally do just about anything. Hey, if you want to help this podcast, you know what to do. Go to Apple Podcasts or wherever the heck it is you're listening to this podcast. Give us a rating. Give us a five-star rating. That's the best thing. Give us a review. A review is really nice because people will read that and they go, oh, hey, this is pretty interesting, and they'll check it out. And then what that means is that people who are like cartoonists who you know may, might otherwise not want to get involved with me may look at it and say, hey, this is a good thing to get involved with, and then we'll have more interesting interviews, and then that'll be very interesting for you. So it, it, it's it's like karma, you know? It's like it's payback. You'll get payback from going there and helping me out. So get some payback. Go to Apple Podcasts. Give me a review. Do something like that. And and uh, I'll be happy. So if I'm happy, you're happy. So, uh, well, not necessarily. That's not necessarily true. But uh, I'm happy. So, okay. Here we go. Uh, and, and of course, you know the other thing to do. Do I have to tell you? Go to jeffgrogan.com. G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N.com. Uh, it's just like the Mickey Mouse Show. M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N.com. And, and uh, you know, it's it, the tour commensurate, you know? So there you go. Um, so check out my work there. I really appreciate it. It really does make me happy to see all those clicks and happy faces showing up on my website and looking at my work because otherwise I feel alone, so lonely. You don't want me to be lonely. That would be terrible. I'd be sad, sad, very blue, and then I couldn't have really good conversations with folks who are on the show. So definitely go to jeffgrogan.com. Check it out. You'll see all my work there. Uh, one of these days, maybe I'll even get t-shirts. I don't know. Something like that. But, uh, you know, I had a lot of coffee today, and I've done two commercials like this, and it's been a lot of fun. And uh, So go to jeffgrogan.com, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N.com, and spikingthelens.com. I don't want to spell that because it's too complicated. So go to spikingthelens.com too, but you can go there from jeffgrogan.com. So do that, okay? Please, thank you very much. Okay, bye. So that'll do it for today's episode. Part two will be up next week, so be looking for that. Uh, there's lots more to come from Robert Pope and his exploration and, and adaptation of Charles Schultz's Peanut characters. If you want to check out Robert's work, be sure to pick up Race for Your Life, Charlie Brown by Jason Cooper and Robert Pope. It's a wonderful adaptation of the film, and I highly recommend it. So look out for that. You can get it on Amazon or wherever good books are sold. And better yet, go down to your independent bookstore and look out for it there. Pat Sandy inspired me a little bit after our conversation with him. I went uh, hunting through the backlog of my library of uh, comics collections, and I found from 1975, uh, 74, 75, my uh, edition, uh, whatever it is, of uh, the Doonesbury Chronicles, the first collection uh, that I know of, or recall anyway, of Doonesbury. And uh, I have to tell you, it's a joy to read it again after so many years. It was a, it was a big influence on me in the 70s. A real big influence on me and, and a lot of cartoonists who were coming of age then, for sure. And you can see that in a whole host of comics that followed afterwards. I think the most notable example, of course, is Bloom County. But then I think you have others, too, that wouldn't be the same. Uh, Boondocks, for example, comes to mind. That wouldn't be the same without Doonesbury and, uh, and the ground and terrain that Gary Trudeau opened. Anyway, going back to that book and looking over it, it is really a thrill to read uh, those comics. They have a great life to them, and they are hilarious. They are really funny. 
I wonder as I read them if they would be pertinent to a young person coming to them today because they are so so steeped in their time. References to Jeb Magruder from the Watergate hearings and uh, uh, you know John Mitchell, uh, Attorney General, and uh, George McGovern, and to Vietnam, and uh, certainly, of course, most obviously Richard Nixon. But uh, all of the, these names pop up in the book, but uh, still, the stories about the people are what's central to that. And uh, I find it just a breath of fresh air in a way to go back and read these again. It's not only uh, like living history in a way, and, and in some sense that's what it is, but it's also uh, invigorating. It's it's filled with the vitality of life. Zonker Harris is one of the greatest characters ever to grace the comics page. That's for sure. Anyway, I encourage you to go back and check out early Doonesbury if you if you haven't. I know this is a side issue, but uh, after the discussion with Pat Sandy last time, I, I had to, to, I was too curious, and it had been too long, so I wanted to go back and read some old Doonesbury, and it was, it was really great. I uh, really enjoyed that. So uh, I hope that you'll, you'll if you have the opportunity, you'll look for some of those Doonesbury books in your local library or uh, seek them out on eBay or elsewhere. So uh, they, they will not disappoint you. And if you are somebody who is born after 1990 uh, and you, you want to f- get a feeling for what that period of time is like, you're going to get it from Doonesbury in those, those years. It wasn't quite that whacked out, but... It's got a sense of that era for sure. If you get a chance, drop me a line. Let me know of any suggestions you might have for upcoming guests on the program, questions you might want answered. Uh, I'd love to get a little uh, audience interaction here. That would be a really great thing, and it'd be really wonderful uh, if indeed you have some thoughts or connections to cartoonists you might want to see on the show. Please let me know. You can reach me at jeffgcomics at gmail.com. That's G-E-O-F-F. Jeff G. G E O F F G. (laughs) Comics, all one word. Jeff G. Comics at gmail.com. Okay? And uh, don't hesitate. Let me know what you're thinking. Let me know if you've got any ideas. I'd love to hear them. Fall is on its way. Days are getting shorter. The sun's going down earlier and it's coming up later. Bittersweet, isn't it? But soon the great pumpkin will be rising and uh, the cavities will be growing. The apples are falling from the tree. It's that time of year. Wherever you are, I hope that uh, the weather and uh, life is kind to you. And thanks for listening. 